Well, hi there, friends. It's certified forgotten time of the month. Um, as we've begin increasingly more interested in doing, we're going to timestamp this. We are recording this on September 21st, 2020. This will air in just a few weeks. So if the world has ended by then, I'm sorry. It was a really good episode. We had a really good guest. I hope the aliens are listening and this is bouncing around the heavens somewhere. But as always, you are listening to the only podcast of my, to my knowledge, that reviews, talks about films that have five or fewer reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. I am Matt Monagle. I'm one half of your Matt hosts, and I'm joined by my partner in crime, the guy that I couldn't do this show without because I've tried and it didn't work. Uh, ooh, I never told you about that. Matt Donato. How you doing, buddy? Uh, what? <laughs> Excuse me? I no, did not good. know about <laughs> I didn't know you tried to get me off our uh, only podcast we have going right now. And yeah, I think we still are the only podcast doing this. If uh, anyone else is out there, I will challenge them to a Thunderdome match. And whoever wins, you get to keep the podcast. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. So you try. It's not as easy as it looks. It's actually torturous. This is actually torture. So uh, this week's episode um, is this is this is a first for us. Uh, an interesting little anecdote because we are bringing somebody in who is involved not not just not just wrote about one of the films that we've talked about, but actually had a hand in making the film. Might have even been you know a, an important person in that process for one of the films that's previously appeared on Certified Forgotten. So then I'm going to let you do the intro. Yeah, I'm going to make it pretty simple because that tee up. Pretty much narrows down to what twenty episodes about. Mm -hmm. So you got about twenty guesses, but we're not going to make you dig through our backlog. We it's have the director the... of Demon Wind. That's our guest. We oh, sorry, oh spoiler my. alert. Don't number one Demon Wind is my thing again. You're always trying to steal my thunder on that. We do not have the writer director of Demon Wind, but we might have someone even better. I might even say that we have the writer director of Patchwork, Tragedy Girls, and Good Boy, Mr. Tyler McIntyre. Tyre, Tyre, wow. Tongue twister there. Tyler, say hi. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And I really do wish I directed Demon Wind. Do you though? Is that is that <laughs> I I mean, I you know, I, I'm very impressed by things that are bonkers, so uh, that movie definitely qualifies. Well, yeah. talking about the bonkers, I'm gonna let Matt get into our questions, but let's come back to that, because I think we want to talk about horror comedy at some point. Yeah, we're gonna <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna circle back and you're gonna tell us your pitch for a Demon Wind remake um, at some point, which I think is is a great idea for the show. Um, but you know, you you've listened to the show, Tyler. You know, kind of like the way that we like to tee up our guests. And I, you know, I've read a ton of interviews with you. You don't get you know any filmmaker doesn't really get to talk about the early days probably about as much as they'd like to. So this is your moment to shine, man. Like talk to us about your early days of being a horror fan, your discovery of film. Like, what was that process like for you when you were first, you know, like everybody else, you were like, oh, there's this thing called movies, and I think I like them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's not that unusual of a story, but like, I mean, I grew up in Canada, uh, you know, I was, I was in a small town of kind of a couple thousand people, um, and but my family kind of all really liked movies, you know, um, and I was kind of a, I was actually a very quiet kid, um, you know, and I liked to draw a lot, um, and so I think the fact that I was kind of like a little bit visual, um, you know, kind of led me to become particularly obsessed uh, pretty early and not just with like horror films, but just with movies in general. Um, uh, and I grew up like mostly with like my dad as kind of a single parent um, who was pretty kind of hands off about media and kind of those sorts of restrictions. Um, but I had an older brother who was very into horror. Um, and so I was always kind of like tangentially kind of curious, um, you know, like I think a lot of younger siblings are about like what their older siblings are kind of into. And um, he read a lot of like Stephen King and, um, and would buy like Fangoria's and, and like, um, you know, would watch 
a lot of uh, you know like scanners and the fly and, and like you know which I didn't realize at the time were, were very you know kind of Canadian uh, horror movies. And it, it wasn't until I was about um, uh, like seven or eight that things kind of started to kick in, kick into high gear, and I started to kind of develop my own tastes. Um, and really, actually, actually, kind of funny, but uh, uh, my, my my dad actually had this kind of, uh, like um, he, we were trying to get cable, um, you know, which which was this is back in the day when you had to you know still get physical cable, or most people knew what that was. Um, and and my dad got in like a physical fight with the cable guy, and then we just stopped having television for like the rest of my childhood. Um, <laughs> And so, so he like literally like kicked the guy off uh, out of our house, and then, um, and then, uh, you know, and then from then on out, it was just like all we did was like rent movies and and go to the theater and watch movies, and just because we there was nothing on TV, um, which I thought was kind of a, a, a sort of funny way to um, you know get into it, um, but uh, but yeah, we we'd always rent you know like lots of lots of back catalog movies, you know, like uh, you know just scrape together money and do like one of those like five movies for five days for five dollars kind of uh, um, things, you know. And uh, since my brother was older, he would always pick three horror movies and I would pick like a, like a comedy movie and an action movie. And so I got like a very disproportionate, uh, uh, you know, like, like education in film, uh, you know, it was slanted very heavily horror for the first couple of years. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, and we never really had too much trouble, like, uh, like, you know, getting like, uh, you know, kind of the, the harder stuff. Like I probably saw, saw like Hellraiser when I was probably 10, you know, like, like it, it was just all. Um, you know, like uh, in the in the very naive nineties. Uh, I feel like our dads have something in common because I wasn't allowed to go practice at the DMV parking lot because my dad almost got to fight with somebody. So <laughs> we have a kinship there. <laughs> How does that work? Your dad's a cop. Yeah, he's you know he's, he's very uh, he's very particular about certain things, and he uh, when you come to his family and you step to his family or anyone related to him, you're gonna have a bad time. Oh, man, I want to. Someday you got to tell me that story offline. Um, all right, so kind of, you know, you, you talked about the the experience that you had as a kid. Now, I'm kind of curious because that we have a lot of. I, I don't know if it's just the way that the show shooks, shakes out or just the way that people tell their stories. It seems like we have a lot of like only children's stories from people when we talk to Uncertified Forgotten. Like it was them and their parents, and they kind of discovered it. Uh, Talk a little bit more about how your dynamic with your brother changed it. Cause you know, I, I was the older brother, so I was passing tastes down to my younger brother. Some of it stuck, some of it didn't, but I'm, I'm kind of curious what it's like when you're kind of like viewing the world through the lens of somebody that at that age, you're probably like, you know, you're too young to hate him. So you want to be just like him. Did you find your, did you find his tastes to be sort of a constant throughout your life? And you're, you're drawn to the stuff that even now that he introduced you to. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some, like, he definitely opened a lot of doors, I felt like. Um, I think part of it was, like, he would find something that kind of, you know, blew his hair back, and, and, and he'd be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm you know, I got to show, I got to see his reaction to this, you know, like, you know, so like a particularly intense scene or whatever. But, you know, like, and, and you know, I gave the example of Scanners earlier, but, like, that scene where that dude's head blow, blow, uh, blows up, like, literally blew my mind. Like, I felt like I was that guy. Um, you know, like, and that was just something that, that, um, that you know, like, he watched and then then couldn't wait to show me, you know, um, and so... Uh, you know, things like that kind of like stick out in my mind. And like, uh, he also loved like, uh, like full moon movies, you know, like, like, uh, like he, we never really got, uh, I never really, um, like he was never really into trauma, you know, the toxic Avenger and stuff like that. Like, uh, like I kind of uh, gravitated more towards like the Roger Corman and, 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 uh, and some of like the full moon stuff, uh, uh, you know, in terms of like the, um, and also like I had cousins who are really into sleepaway camp, you know, so I watched those movies like, uh, or, you know, far too early to really understand the complex uh, gender politics at work. Mm. Um, and, 
you know, like, uh, you know, and things like, you know, like, like Castle Freak, you know, kind of leads me to Reanimator, and then Reanimator leads me to Army of Darkness, and Army of Darkness leads me to Evil Dead 2, and Evil Dead 1, and Dead Alive, and Bad Taste, and like, you know, um, and it kind of, you know, sort of snowballed from there, and a lot of those, like, you know, um, were all, uh, you know, in my mind, uh, you know, part of that same kind of, like, discovery of the, of these movies that, that were, um, often on the lighter side, but, but all had something that was pretty, um, pretty gooey about them and, um, and, and really kind of piqued my interest. And then I, um, started to think more and more about like making movies, um, because of things like, uh, you know, like at the end of, of like the full moon stuff, they would have like those video zone segments, you know, like the, um, like, I mean, I don't know what age the po- uh, people who listen to the podcast are, but they're probably all over the map, but back in the day, they used to have um, uh, like uh, at the end of the videotape, they'd have like a 10 minute segment of like the making of, um, uh, and sometimes trailers for other movies. Um, and, uh, you know, that kind of gave me like a sense of like, Oh, like people make these things and that's a job. And like, you could do that. And, um, and, uh, and, and, it, you know, kind of kicked off um, a bit of that or started to kind of plant those sort of seeds. Yeah. You've mentioned in interviews before that, you know, your, your, your dad had access to a video camera and then it was basically off to the races for you. So like, what kind of, what kind of stuff were you like, what, what kind of not even full fledged films, but like, what were you trying to replicate? What were things that you were trying to see if you could create on, on film when you started shooting stuff yourself? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was all over the map and I, I, for some reason didn't like, I wasn't crazy about like, um, uh, like it, it very rarely had to do with like a specific, like I'm going to recreate something, um, specific, but like, like I definitely like, you know, w- would do shots that are kind of like Sam Raimi would do, or I do, uh, you know, or, or I, or I'd, um, be, um, you know, obsessed with like, um, you know, like action movies or, or something like that. And so, so I'd watch like a ton of, of movies of a specific genre and then I would make one like that. Like, um, like I remember when I was in college, I made a, um, I watched like all the Charlie Chaplin short films and then like a bunch of Buster Keaton stuff and Harold Lloyd stuff. And then I like made a 30 minute short film on like black and white reversal film on like an old Airy BL shooting at 18 frames a second with like a wooden tripod it, it, to make like what a silent film would be like, you know? Um, and then kind of, um, I did the same thing with like film noirs and then like with Westerns and, and like, you know, just trying and, and take like a deep dive into, into a genre and then try it uh, myself in a way. Um, so there was always like a bit of a, a referential quality to some of the stuff, but, but I really liked the idea of kind of like playing with people's expectations. Like, um, and, and back then, you know, when you're making no budget movies, you kind of benefit from the expectation of everyone thinks it's going to be a piece of shit. And so, so when you go in, um, uh, and, and when you show them something that, that like they can chuckle at or, or, or that, um, you know, that, uh, that, that they didn't expect to be as amusing as it was or creative as it was, um, then those were the things that I was after was there was that kind of more genuine reaction that was just yours, not just like aping off of somebody. It, it's kind of funny. You mentioned that, uh, you know, you'd walk, watch all these uh, certain films and try to replicate something, you know, not replicate, but you're getting a vibe. And, you know, that's kind of what guides your piece by piece. And it made me think of my own college experience really quickly. And I was in business school. I went to Hofstra, which has a great film program. My roommate was a film major. I did business because parents wanted me to do safe things, blah, blah, blah. But I did help him on one project. So I'm helping my roommate out. And I forget exactly who he learned about using this uh, technique. But in one of the black and white films, and I think it was Hitchcock possibly, but they use chocolate syrup for the blood. And I think, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I I didn't want to get it wrong, but if that is, yeah. So I was thinking thinking exactly that Hitchcock and my friend, the film major is doing a little bit more of the replication, I would say, than you're talking about where he heard it worked. So we had to do that exactly like that. And 
in his mind, we were going to get this great shot where the camera's inside the car looking through the uh, side, I think back door side window, and someone's head would slam against it. And I was on top of the car with a plastic bag filled with chocolate syrup. And I'm supposed to smack the bag at the right time. So the chocolate syrup looks like a blood splatter on the forehead. But it's like thick, goopy chocolate syrup that isn't exploding anywhere. And when I tell you we tried that for half an hour and he was screaming at me and I'm like, this is just a bad idea. And he's like, you're not doing it right. And I'm like, no, you're just trying to imitate something that like a professional did. And you're a kid with a fucking bag of chocolate syrup. So that was like traumatizing for me. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is interesting to kind of like, you know, discover your limits like that, you know, because uh, you, you read all these things that are like, oh, that's how they did it. And, and you, you have like almost no details to work off of. Um, especially back then, like before, you know, the internet and, and stuff like that are, are largely, um, or, or when, um, you know, and, and even those, de- even the details you get off the internet are not correct half the time. We're only kind of part of the story, you know? So it's, it's, uh, it, it was, it was, um, you know, but that's also part of the fun of it, you know, is trying to figure out like what works for you, you know? Yeah. Well, and what was it like you t- talking about the internet, um, you know, and you're of a certain age um, that a lot of kind of a unique period for a lot of filmmakers, that we now think of as like, oh, these people that were coming up in the early days of the internet and whatever. But like, what what did you feel? What kind of, I don't know, sense of online community or resources did you feel you had access to because you, you were developing your trade at just the right time where there was a lot more information available than there might've been in the past? Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, it was it was definitely, I think, helpful. Like, because, um, I mean, I didn't have a computer till kind of late. I mean, I got a, um, like, a, um, I, I had a friend, um, uh, by, who actually produced Patchwork with me, a guy named John Agraponis, uh, who, who we went to, I went to high school with um, and, uh, and kind of grew up together in the same town. Um, and he had um, one of the early, you know, like, um, uh, Mac, uh, <clears throat> like iMac uh, uh, machines uh, where you could edit on Final Cut Pro or, or uh, iMovie or, or whatever. And, and you could do like digital editing. On, and that's really what kind of opened up the doors is, is um, you know, realizing that you could like shoot something on a, ta- a tape and import it into the, and then, you know, like do mo- like, you know, real um, editing um, uh, in, in a, like a nonlinear sense uh, in, in a way that, um, you know, I, I couldn't get out of like, you know, I, I did a little bit of super eight work um, kind of early, but, but you, you know, you didn't have um, nearly that, that flexibility. And it was just a lot easier to kind of ingest a, 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 a tape into the computer and be able to kind of cut from there. And so like, that was my, like when I graduated from high school, I got a, like an old iMac, one of those Igloo ones. And that's, I used that. I like ran that into the ground, um, you know, uh, up until film school, um, just editing, you know, like, you know, probably 50 movies on it, um, like short films and of, of all kinds and for like other people. And, and I really got familiar with posts that way. And I think that's why I ended up going to, um, or ended up kind of making my living um, largely after after college um, through editing because um, it was because um, I feel like a lot of people don't it didn't take the time to like you know develop like the technical expertise and would just be like excited about like oh I just want to go shoot something and then once they finished shooting it they wouldn't know what to do and I would always be there being like I'll do it for you and then then we like would work together and so I met a lot of people that way. Yeah, I like that the you mentioned the editing thing because I, I was kind of curious. You know, that's not necessarily the a path that a lot of people will take right like they want to be out there they're shooting and for somebody to kind of begin their career as an editor and then move into obviously you have the educational background you have the skills to be a filmmaker but to start as an editor and then move more broadly into writing and directing you know what what kind of what do you think that offers as, as a mindset in terms of what you bring to films that maybe somebody wouldn't or somebody who has never done the work of sitting down and piecing it all together 
um, experience they might not have. You know, how do you think that shapes your ideas as a filmmaker? Um, I think it's, it's been extremely helpful. Um, I'm a big proponent of, of encouraging people to shoot uh, as much as possible, like even if it's low budget stuff. Like I think there's a bit of a hesitancy if you, especially if you do like film school for undergrad or like if you're kind of, um, if you have like like too high of an expectation for your like your early projects uh, to just never really do something, like I'm not going to shoot it until the script's right. I'm not going to, you know, like, uh, or, or, or I don't have enough money to do it. You know, like all those kind of excuses that, that, they add up and they just cost you time, you know? And so then then like years fall off the calendar and and you you don't really produce anything. Whereas I have a lot more respect for people who are constantly shooting things and and can't help, but, but do that. Um, And that just because that's kind of the compulsion that I felt, um, you know, like in high school and and college. And uh, I ended up, um, I like, I identify with that very, um, very, very well. Um, But uh, uh, you know, you can uh, like when, when you have, um, you know, the, the opportunity to kind of, uh, uh, like, like work on, on things over and over again. And you walk into a, you, you wrote down a scene and you walk into a space and figure out how to shoot it. And then, and then, um, then you take that footage home and cut it and then you show it to an audience and see their reaction. Um, and then you take that information of like, this worked, this didn't work. How am I going to do it differently next time? And then you go through that process a bunch kind of on yourself, uh, like by yourself or with your small team, like over and over again uh, with very low stakes and then it, 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 the principles are the same. Like once you get on a set with seventy people, they, they still they still look at you and they're like, "Where do you want to put the camera?" You know, like like it's still like this the the, the same decision making process is the same. And so it's kind of a funny, um, uh, you know, um, uh, thing because um, I, I realized once I uh, went to film school, um, which I went to the American Film Institute, which is a reasonably well thought of program. Um, but when I got on set, I realized that a bunch of people. Uh, who who were in that program in like this master's level program, uh, you know, didn't have that uh, experience. Like, like, as in they just like, like they, they didn't know how many shots we needed to finish the scene. And I'm like, guys, it's three, you know, like this, this, and this, you know, like, and then they'd be like, okay, it's three, you know, like, and so I ended up kind of, um, you know, like shifting into like, like a script supervisor role and like a first AD role on like, on like shoots that I, um that I wasn't editing or, or, um uh, and uh, you know, uh, and, you know, I, I would end up crewing a lot. And I, I, so I crewed almost every day that I could just to try and get, because just because I love being on set and would learn a lot doing that. And so, you know, and, it's, and I also like, you know, it's an expensive, you know, proposition to go to film school. So you want to make sure you get as much out of it as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a question kind of going back to the horror comedy aspect of things, because, you know, <laughs> I, I think you're, well, I, I'm not going to dive right into the comedy thing, but a little piece of that kind of piqued my interest because you're mentioning kind of your discovery process and, you know, going from Raimi into, you know, reanimator and things of that nature. And I found myself doing kind of the same trajectory that you did. And I, I found it for myself because I liked the adrenaline quote unquote, I guess I'll call it of horror. And I liked feeling that sense of fear, but I was also kind of like a fearful kid and I was kind of like had a lot of anxiety and stuff. So I found it a lot easier to handle horror when I was being introduced to it in the comedy format. And I'm just wondering like if, if that had anything like in your bearing as well, or like, you know, what kind of drew you to the comedy side of it versus diving straight into the exorcist, spooky, scary stuff um, that, you know, again, your films have a vibe. I think that rubs off. So I, I, I'm just curious where that kind of came up. Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily think it, it had directly to do with, with like um, watering things down with, with, with comedy in terms of like, like, I don't think I couldn't handle the, the more brutal stuff. Um, I just um, really was attracted to 
the um, kind of homemade quality of it, or, 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 or like the like like uh, movies like Evil Dead Two are like made with love, you know, like and you can really tell. And and like even um like I remember Anchor Bay like released like a um like an audio commentary uh, for Evil Dead Two that that had like Greg Nicotero and like um like uh you know uh like Sam Raimi and like uh um yeah, Bruce Campbell and like a bunch of people, you know and they're just buddies like sitting around joking and 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 I remember like listening to that when I was like you know fourteen and being like wow these guys like get it you know like, like they like it's like filmmaking and creating art as like a lifestyle or as part of like, you know, something kind of bigger. And it kind of fit into this narrative that um, I think was very popular, you know, like on the internet among indie filmmakers in the 90s, which was, you know, like uh, like you, you get these heroes like Kevin Smith and Robert Rodriguez who all have this, like, you can do this message, you know? And 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 uh, Sam Raimi uh, and Evil Dead and like that all kind of had that uh, that same sort of quality to it um, where you're just kind of like, yeah, I, I would love to have a career where I just make goofy art with my buddies you know like and and you kind of like push towards that well as speaking now as somebody that does have that career um and does make movies with your buddy you know one of the the things i'm always curious about no matter what your profession is if you're one of those people that knew what you wanted to do when you were little or or kind of had a, a, a thing that drove you and you end up doing that as a career i'm always curious how your relationship to that thing changes over time because you know you obviously have access now to a lot of a, a lot of different filmmakers, a lot of different horror movies. You know, a lot of stuff comes in your orbit that you can check out. And even when Donato was giving me the list, you gave us five. I think five films to choose from for today's episode. So you're out there. You're ingesting a lot of this stuff on your own. How do you feel that your relationship to to horror and to horror movies has changed since you started becoming a successful filmmaker? Are you still drawn to the kind of stuff that you've always been drawn to? Do you find yourself thinking about it a little bit differently now that you're in the industry? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm largely drawn to, to similar things, but like, you know, your taste, I think changes a bit as you get older, but I still, um, I still very much love horror. Um, but like my, uh, my, the reason I'll watch a new horror movie is not necessarily because I'm like, oh, this is for me. Um, uh, but that can cause me to get excited about it, but it's more to just kind of see what's out there. And, and you get to like a certain point, like where you, um, like, cause when I was in high school and college, like a lot of, you know, I'm making films like on borrowed time, you know, like it's between classes. It's like on weekends. It's like when I should be doing other things like studying, you know, um, and, and then once it became, um, my source of income, um, then, then it was still kind of a battle because, because I was like, um, I was often, um, editing a movie, uh, like, like I, like edited movies for like Lifetime and Hallmark and like, you know, or, or like documentaries and things like that. Um, uh, that were like my bread and butter. And then I would um, have to get up at six in the morning and write from like six to nine on my own project and then go to work at nine and then work till six and then go home and write another couple hours. And that's how I wrote, um, you know, that's how we, we wrote Tragedy Girls, you know, like, um, like you need to kind of, uh, um, you know, find the time where, where you can. And, and so I always felt like it wasn't until um, really after Tragic Girls played South by Southwest that I did this became like my full time, like, like I really stopped editing and I was doing like full time writing directing. So it's only kind of like recently where, where it really felt like, like uh, my job and, uh, and uh, my time had really kind of merged completely. Um, and, and now that that's happened, I feel pretty good about it. Uh, you know, and, and I, I, even though like my taste kind of, um, you know, change, I, I think uh, uh, it's, um, um, you know, I, I, I still, you know, have, have a, I, you know, I still probably watch a new movie a day, um, and and I you know still have quite an appetite for it, 
Um, but it goes through waves. Like you become interested in different things. And I, and I also watch, uh, rewatch a lot of movies that I love over and over again. It's amazing how so many sleepless nights can come up with something as sharp as trashy girls, <laughs> like the exhaustion that just goes into creating something of that nature and having to do it on the side because I, you know, me and Monagle both very much here, the working to pay your bills during the day and pursuing your uh, passion at night. So yeah, that South by uh, premiere. I still remember that because it was one of those, it was a really strong year for South by Midnighters that you played alongside like Mayhem and a few others. And it, it still stood out. And I was like, so this Tyler guy, what else has he made and how can I see it? Yeah, I mean, and that was, you know, um, such a fun, like, I mean, you know, this is back when you could go to a physical festival and see, see screenings with, with people, um, which is, um, you know, gone away with the dinosaur, apparently. Um, but, but you know, like just getting out there and meeting people like like Joe Lynch, you know, like, like it's like, you know, who's a very like um, a public horror figure. And then and then, you know, like uh, but then, you know, when you meet him in real life, he's such like he's such a sweet guy. He's, he's like an ambassador for the genre, you know, and just kind of like welcomes you into like, you know, the family and with open arms. And, and it's and it was doing that with with everybody who, who was new. And, and so it was cool to kind of and I feel like horror as a um, genre has a lot of people, um, you know, like uh, like, you know, like Barbara Crampton's really great for this as well. But like who kind of um, are these um, kind of mainstays that a lot of people look up to who really are, um, you know, just great, you know, and, and they, and they really kind of like raised, raised the, 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 the quality of, of people's work by just being, um, you know, like great ambassadors for the genre. And also I have a tragedy girls to thank for my most infamous poll quote at this point in my life. The, uh, the all infamous. So, so fetch Matt Donato, yeah. we got this covered. <laughs> Yeah, we. I actually had a big fight about that uh, with the uh, with the um, with the guy who was managing the, or doing the trailer, uh, overseeing the trailer. But uh, we don't need to get into that. <laughs> I remember having that conversation with you outside Brooklyn because I was like, "So how did that get in the trailer?" <laughs> oh, I love that, uh, Donato. You just you end up in the weirdest places. Um, oh, all so right. We're just going to let that hang there. Not I think we're going to let that. I think we're going to let that hang. You know, we'll tease it for the next time Tyler's on the show. I think we can. Oh, I thought I meant your comment. <laughs> oh no, that's fine. You're fine. Um, well, if you've been if you've been paying attention and you've been hearing stuff like "Made with Love," um, you know, like "Small Crew," making shit happen, then I think that serves as a pretty good precursor for the film we're going to talk about today, which is "The Devil Lives Here." It's in the title of the episode. You should have figured that out by now. So when we come back. It's time for the devil to live here. We'll be right back. You know, this is the part of the show, because you hear the music playing right now, where we like to reach out and say thank you to our patrons. And more than that, we like to give our patrons a voice. We like to have them craft words. And we like to read those words over the air, live, finger quotes live. So that is what we're going to do. And Donato is going to do, the, do us the honor of reading what our people are suggesting. Up first today, we have Patreon subscriber Matt Glazer with a message. Donate to Move Texas because voting and your engagement in our communities is good. HTTP movetexas.org. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Move Texas. Uh, Matt Glazer is a friend of mine, one of my closest friends. He'll be happy to hear me say that. It um, has been for a long time. And he actually recommended Move Texas to me when I first moved to Austin as a really good voter engagement and voter turnout organization. So 
I, it's one of the, the only, I think it might be the only organization that I donate to on a monthly basis. And if you're not in Austin and you can't, or not in Texas and you can't donate to move Texas, please find your equivalent, find whatever the California or New York equivalent of move Texas is. Sometimes the best thing that we can do, oftentimes the best thing we can do is help the organizations that are helping people vote. I'm very happy you uh, called Matt one of your best friends and not what you usually say behind his back. That, that, that was very nice of you. No, no, we're, this was going to be in the episode. Don't do that. What's the second thing? Denari? Oh, the second thing, right. Mr. Will Ryan has another message. This was a little more punctual, but still thematically relevant. Quote, end quote. Vote! Exclamation point. Oh, is that it? That's it. Just vote. Oh. Just vote. Oh, Will, that's a... Yeah, I like that. Well done, sir. That's a very simple and very important message. And if you're listening to this either on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and several, pretty much the rest of the week, it's a good message. It's a powerful message. You're probably in a good but nervous place. Uh, and if you're listening to this after November 3rd, um, either congratulations or I'm sorry. I don't know what else to say. I got my ballot yesterday, and I no longer have my ballot because it is important to not hold on to that thing. Do it, fill it out, vote it, get it in the mail, or drop that shit off. Well, when uh, when Joe Biden wins California by one vote, you'll have Matt Donato to thank. <laughs> the hero that we need. Uh, let's get back to the show. Hey, welcome back. So this week on Certified Forgotten, we are going to be talking about the 2015 film, The Devil Lives Here. It is a Brazilian film. It is directed by Rodrigo Gasparani and Dante Vecchio. It is, uh, Evil Dead is an easy comparison because there's a seller and, you know, a demon. So it's an Evil Dead-esque film about a group of teenagers that go to an old family house in the woods. Um, uh, there is some significance to the day that they're going there. It, it throws back to kind of an ancient family tragedy that has occurred in the previous owners of the house. At the same time, there are two brothers who also have sort of a uh, uh, supernatural maybe reason for being there. And it all harkens back to centuries ago, uh, the evil and we'll just let's just say his name because it's fun. The Honey Baron, the evil man who used to run the plantation and mistreat his slaves. And the fact that he continues to reach even beyond death into the lives of of these kids that are just trying to have a good weekend. Uh, I don't want to say too much about the ins and outs of the plot in that section, because I actually think it does a really awesome job of teasing out um, kind of the historical threads that connect what happened in the past and the, the modern day characters. So I'll leave it at that. We'll talk about it spoilers in a minute. So you'll have some time to get warmed up for it. But Tyler, I want to uh, let's start with you, man. What was the reason for this being on your short list? Like, how did you even how did you even see this? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, essentially, uh, one of my favorite things about about uh, festivals is just being able to see stuff that you would never be, uh, normally, uh, you know, uh, cross your radar. And so um, I had, um, I essentially went to Brazil um, for a festival called Fanaspoa down there. And they, they, they're um, a real like grassroots kind of um, uh, uh, tastemakers for, for genre in South America. And they find just some of the awesome, uh, like, like some like awesome low key titles that you wouldn't really um, expect to see. And this was, you know, actually produced in Brazil. And so, um, so I, uh, I didn't really know much about it. Um, uh, you know, when I, when I was there, um, and I, 
uh, you know, but then uh, I saw the audience was getting kind of like, like real lined up for it. So I was like, oh, I'm going to use my badge and go, I'm going to check this one out. So I went in and, and I just saw it really kill with an audience, you know, like, and, um, and they, um, you know, like, uh, like they do their own subtitles. So I was a little bit, you know, um, uh, you know, it's in Portuguese. So, so I was, you know, like, like, uh, uh, I wasn't hundred percent sure I was getting all the, um, or like I was reading like their, their English subtitles that they made. Um, and you know, but, but it, it was, it was just a, a riot. Like I had a good time watching it, you know, like, and it was just kind of like what I sort of wanted. And there's a bunch of jump scares that really got me. And, uh, you know, and so I, I, it's always kind of stuck with me. And I, so when I got back to, um, to, uh, uh LA and, um, and, you know, I, I, I ended up picking up on, uh, picking it up on, on DVD, uh, once I saw it got a release and they had changed the title, like, uh, uh from, um, uh, the fostering to, um, uh, the devil is here. And, uh, Anyway, so I decided to um, you know pick it up, uh, pick it up, and I haven't hadn't seen it uh, since. Um, and so I, you know, uh, when I was putting together a list of movies that were forgotten, I, I knew that I really wanted to include kind of some um, some some titles on there that, that kind of fit the bill. And I knew that this one, um, you know, didn't get uh, a lot of play, even though it had some uh, some really good fe- like it played at Sitges um, and uh, and uh, Brussels and some really good like really sh- solid like high profile genre festivals. Um, and so I thought it would be a good one to, uh, to revisit and kind of sort out my own thoughts on. I mean, for starters, it's an hour and 20 minutes. So like six stars right there. Like, well, yeah, it's, it's actually shorter than that too. Like, like, uh, I mean, I don't know if they want me pointing this out, but like, <laughs> it's like 70, it's like 77 minutes. And I think they, they rounded it up to 80 on, uh, on the runtime. Uh, it's, uh, it's a Tom it's, Cruise 510 is what it is. <laughs> So it's a lean experience, you know, it just goes. But yeah, I, you know, it's, it's, I joke about that, but um, there is something really exciting about watching a short horror film because there's just that, you know, that there, there can't be a lot of bloat to it. Right. And you, you know, that the margin of error probably for the stuff that they were making, the stuff that they were able to use is not that, not that high so it's always fun to watch these these kind of short movies the ones that finish um, even under an hour and 30 you know anything in like the 115 to 130 range you're kind of like oh like everything they have is on the table and so you know you're excited to see if they're going to if they're going to be able to deliver because you don't I, this is probably blasphemy in some of our circles Donato but like you don't need a two-hour horror movie 90 percent of the time absolutely not and especially when we're talking about a cabin in the woods horror film that's that's 90 tops because we have seen this location we have seen this formula countless times too many to count to the point where there's a movie called the cabin in the woods which is just a mockery of cabin in the woods films in a way and when i saw the 77 minutes i was immediately excited because once again i agree with you monocle i don't think we need to be sitting through two-hour movies every single day of our lives i remember there was one fantastic fest where for two straight days my four-day lineup was all movies over two hours and I was exhausted. Like the second day I was just like, do I even come back to the festival? Like, what is life? I don't know. And to get something this lean, as Tyler has already said, because it is lean, it it gets right to it. It immediately starts with the historical backstory of the Honey Baron, which it is a fun name to say, but his actions are not fun at all. And tying that into the parallel timeline of kids going to a cabin in the woods to do something stupid it's the most cliched possible formulation of horror that you know we kind of dream up but it still manages not to be a cliche at all i I know i just said it is a cliche but it's kind of just living in that world and it finds freshness and it finds vibrancy 
in the cabin in the woods, you know, in, the, in these archetypes, in, in the architecture that we are so familiar with and to give us something that tries so hard, but in a good way. It's trying not to be just another cabin in the woods film. It knows what you've seen already. And it says, well, we're going to give you something different here and we're going to do it pretty quickly. And I respect the hell out of that. Yeah, totally. There's, there's something, um, uh, well, actually, I mean, I don't know how, uh, um, how much, uh, how many compliments I want to throw Monocle's way, but, um, but he used a, like a metaphor on one of your episodes that was like comparing like, like low budget horror to jazz, you know, like the idea that there's just like a, a certain set of, 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 of uh, setups that you can use. And then it's just kind of like, how do you do it? Um, and, and I think that very much applies for something like this, where, where they're, they're obviously, you know, committing to like the cabin in the woodsness, they have a little bit of that evil dead influence, but then there's a bunch of other stuff that they're bringing to the table that, that, that sets it apart that, that, you know, like makes it more original, that makes it, um, you know, like, uh, that takes you uh, to these other places that, that are more interesting, that are kind of like from the filmmakers and from their perspective and from their worldview. And, and that what's what makes it worth watching, not just because, it, and, and it makes it not just another Cabin in the Woods movie. Yeah, and for the record, every time you throw Monogle a compliment, you're not allowed to throw another one until you then compliment me, just, just so it's known. I don't believe that that was in any of the notes that we sent to Tyler pre-recording, so I think that this is actually going great, and I'm not going to ask for any changes. Um, I Yeah, I want to um, I, I want to talk about like that Cabin in the Woods send-up, because I think that's really interesting. And there's two things that the movie does really kind of in the early stages that, that I like that sort of set the hook immediately. And one is it gives it, um, it gives it a sense of history, right? Like it's interesting that we're talking about this, um, which I haven't seen, but I assume both of you have already. We're talking about this particular movie the week that Antebellum comes out because Antebellum um, has been getting a lot of conversations and a lot of critical backlash for sort of the modern and historical combination and the way that they treat sort of the awfulness, um, the way that they portray some of the historical slavery elements in film. And it's interesting to watch The Devil Lives Here, which is doing sort of a similar thing. And it's setting up kind of these two timelines that they're following with the characters, um, that reinforcing and, you know, the actions of the next generation are kind of following there. But it doesn't, it doesn't feel cheap because it, the, the, the film understands that it's not going to be able to provide us like a, a whole... 18th century village. Um, it just gives us a couple of people in a field with some with some beehives, and that works. But it also it also gives a little bit of weight. Like you know, Tyler's listening to the show. You 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 know how much I geek out on historical horror, and you know how much I geek out on the idea of like national trauma as an instigator for this. Um, but just by doing those two things earlier, it's it's the yes, it does. It gives you the idea of uh, cabin in the woods type horror, and it lets you know that it's going to play in a in a, in a, in a series of scares that you're sort of familiar with but it's always interesting to me when a movie starts out in the first five minutes and basically says i have something more to say i'm gonna i'm gonna try something here and you might like it or you might not like it but like we're going for it we're going to do this multi-generational horror story and promise if you stick with us you're probably gonna have a good time it, it's you know there's all the reasons in the world to not do something like that when you don't have a ton of budget to keep it safe you could have had a very serviceable movie about these teenagers with some kind of boogeyman in the the cellar and it's just it, it has that extra gear of ambition that had me nodding my head for like the first half an hour of the movie yeah totally i think there's something fun about like uh you know there's using this this kind of historical context and and for you know i guess it's not really spoiling anything but like you know it's using like this takes place on a plantation they used to have um slaves on it but like in this is in brazil 
you know, like so, so it's it's not quite like the same as the the um uh you know uh, the, like the American experience of it, but but it's mm-hmm. it's it actually seems to be like far far worse um because like I think you know slavery was around for like a, a bit longer um and and this this movie actually kind of inspired me to do a bit more of like a dive on like uh, or like you know into like the history of it and kind of um you know like learn a little bit more about like how that uh, how the slave trade worked in South America compared to North America and. Anyway, it was it was a little bit it was interesting, but it kind of takes on this um, it, like the way it's used in the film is is like it's introducing these things and and it's um, it's using them um, in, in a way that doesn't feel particularly cheap to me um, because it takes on an almost like folklore type quality like like um, you know um, uh, and uh, and it's um, uh, you know they're trying to keep the, these like negative forces at bay you know like and it is kind of this good versus evil um, uh, uh, thing going on. Yeah, and to hit on the antebellum note that you mentioned before, Monogal, I mean, what works about The Devil Lives Here and what doesn't work about antebellum is the fact that one movie is using this trauma and it's using this national history to tell a story in a different way. It's not dwelling on the past. It's using that context to embolden the story that is being told in the future and in the modern. It's taking the past bring it into the modern and almost recontextualizing it in a way that brings up the same trauma without overtly reliving it over and over again. That is the devil lives here where antebellum, the way that it treats trauma and the way that it wants you to feel the pain again, it, it's a, it feels like exploitation because all it does is go back to the root of the source. It goes back to what we know already. And it just tries to show that as brutally as possible. It, it's like this, kind of fucked up diorama in a way where you're looking at it going, we know this already. Why are you subjecting us to this again? Where you have filmmakers like Jordan Peele who are doing tremendous things by evoking the sins and pains of our past and especially our nation's past and finding new and reinvigorated and imaginative ways to still use the storytelling device of those old you know, again, I, I will just say the sins of our past. We're using that to tell a new story, though. Jordan Peele is using that to get ahead and start telling horror stories from a perspective that we are just so lacking right now. And that is why I did not take to Antebellum. And that is why I respect the hell out of the movies like The Devil Lives Here, because you could have easily done the uh, slave horror route and we could have belabored that and it could have been a lot nastier than what we get and what we get is still pretty bad but the point here is not to keep reusing the same imagery the point is to take something and make something new out of it which is what the devil lives here does right yeah and all the worst parts of the film like all the all the the atrocities that are explicitly referenced in the film are only ever come out in conversation. It's either the contemporary kids talking about the honey baron and the things that he did, or the honey baron um, talking to other people in, in when the, the film goes back into the, the 18th century or 17th century timeline, kind of like explaining the things that he's done to, to some of his slaves. So the film makes that decision not to show, but to tell. And for something like this, it's, you know, again, you, you tapping into the conversations that are going on all around us right now. It's something that you feel gives it a, a little bit of a, a chance at withstanding the test of time and really being a movie that people are going to go back to because it's not it's not dating itself it's not feeling the need to be exploitative it just lets you kind of be like oh this guy is 
you don't need him to do bad things because the actor that plays the honey baron is fucking creepy as shit. And the way he talks is creepy and you just let him talk and you're like, okay, bad man, bad man. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's like almost a hundred percent like performance stuff. And it's a, a actor named Ivo Mueller. And I literally like, you know, like looked his name up uh, or, you know, like, like, wait, you know, waited and watched in the credits. Cause I was like, he did such a good job that I was like, I gotta um, find out if he's anything else. And he, and also like great choices in terms of like his makeup and stuff. I think it all kind of like, but it just comes down to like such a, a cool performance. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking a little bit about kind of the, um, the makeup and the, the way that this looks. Um, what did you think, like Tyler, what were your impressions of, of how the film manages to convey, you know, um, thousand year old zombies and some of the, the scarring and the brutal damage that it has in this. Cause I'm always, that's always the part where I feel like I'm prepared to give a movie a little bit of leeway because it's not necessarily going to get that stuff right. But I was, I was, I was impressed at how good the practical costuming effects, the, you know, the makeup effects in the film were, despite the fact they clearly don't have a lot of, a, a lot of resources to throw behind them, but it looks really good. Like a lot of that stuff really worked for me. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, there is like, like the, the they like, um, uh, there, there's a, you know, kind of this zombie like character that they, you know, like, I mean, like, I'm sure if they had a little bit more resources, it probably would have looked, you know, they probably would have gone with a different design, but what they did was they looked at like what they could pull off and then, you know, like did the best version of like committing to that as, as, as they could. And that's what I liked about this is it's very smart in the bootstrap nature of it. You know, um, uh, like they kind of made these decisions that, um, that uh, allowed them to, um, you know, like, like, uh, uh, like, like not dwell on things like that, but, but have it be effective and, and, you know, like, like it doesn't cost um, anything to have, um, you know, them kind of, uh, you know, working on the movement of the actors to get that right sort of vibe. Um, um, even though they couldn't afford to do like, you know, um, you know, like something look, look as decayed as it would or whatever. Um, you know, but like, uh, I mean, I got a little bit of backstory on, on the movie, uh, uh, from, uh, from one of the, one of the filmmakers and they were saying that like, it was a 14 day shoot, um, you know, with, um, uh, and, and, you know, so it was only $50,000, you know, like, which, which is like nothing, you know, like, um, and, uh, and so to, to kind of see that they, you know, like were, were able to pull, um, off a lot of these, um, effects and things like that as cohesively as they were. Um, I think it's, um, you know, it, it says a lot about, uh, you know, the ingenuity behind it. Yeah. And I think there's just intelligence as a filmmaker as well that you almost can't teach. I think there's stuff ingrained where it, even like you talk about football and football IQ and, you know, just a player on the field is just going to be better because they're smarter about the game of football than other players. It's something that is just there. And I, I think that translates to filmmaking because the one thing that I immediately noticed in talking about the, the zombie that is in the film is the zombie's wearing a hood most of the time. So the part that should be exposed, you know, the head of the zombie, this deformed, decaying, you know, however you would want to represent that, as Tyler's alluded to, it becomes more of a performance thing because we're not really seeing a lot of the details that we would in another film that would have the budget to pull off the makeup effects and design. But the performer is doing everything right to make us understand what's under that hood and to make us understand that there is something gnarly and gross. And we don't have to see it because we just know it. We understand it. And he's, the film is able to play the trick of having us do the work for it. But at the same time, we don't care because we're in the universe that they're building. Yeah, there's something kind of fun about that, too. Like, like I always it's always kind of a tell for me. Um, about like adjudicating like a like a, um, a lower budget film 
when you look at like the performances and like who they kind of like picked, like, you know, you, I, we obviously haven't heard any of these actors before, but they're doing like, like they're committed and they're doing, uh, you know, like, like largely a good job. Like, um, and, and to the point where it's like, if they had, you know, uh, you know, uh, more money, you know, like if this was a million dollar movie or whatever, like, like I might encourage them to cast the same people, you know, like, 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 you know, like, and just, just kind of, you know, give them more time to, to kind of do what they're already clearly on the path to towards doing, you know? Yeah, there was, that was one of the notes I actually took down. There was a lot of passion in these performances. And as someone who has seen a hell of a lot of indie horror movies, and this isn't a knock on, you know, people that have to act in them and people want to act in them, but there tends to be sometimes a quality barrier that you hit. And there just tends to be a performance barrier, like specifically where, you only get to a certain point, but every actor in this film is committed to their role. Uh, you know, if, if it's a fearful scene, they're selling the paranoia quite well. They're selling the stakes in the game at this point with a zombie walking around a house. And, you know, again, we alluded to the fact that Cabin in the Woods, teenagers go there. They play around with a, a force that they shouldn't and they find themselves locked in like an Evil Dead scenario. It's all stuff we've seen before, but these performances live that role. They, they live that, uh, all that weirdness and the freakiness that's happening. And yeah, I was never off put by any of them. They're, they're all doing their arcs pretty goddamn well. Yeah, and there's something that's um, particularly good about the performances is that one of the big ideas for The Devil Lives Here, at least, in, in, you know, me watching it, is just the way that like decisions, it's a timely message for the world we live in, but the decisions that people made generations before you were born um, are going to come back to haunt you. There's certain things that have happened in family histories, in the parts of the world that you live in that are just like, you're just born into it. And eventually it's going to catch up and there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the world that you happen to inherit. And so on the, the micro level, like all these performances are doing good, you know, like the relationships are working there. The characters are, are believable in terms of who cares about who and why they care about who and the sympathies that they place and all of that. But there's also this macro idea in the film that they're being kind of inexorably pulled towards this thing that is predetermined, that they never had any say in the outcome of it. Um, and that applies to the two brothers that are there to, to maybe serve as a force of good against the Honey Baron. It certainly applies to the four teenagers that just happened to be there on bento night, the wrong night of the year. Um, and, you know, a good, I think a lot of movies are really good at selling those kind of scenes, but there's something special about that movie when you feel like the actors get the big idea too, like that, that through line, that thing that's supposed to drive the performances. And that was so impressive to me in this movie. Like I really got that pull for all of them. You got this sense that like this thing was inevitable and you just had to like watch it sadly unfold. Anyone can jump in there. I thought that was pretty oh. smart. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I definitely think that there's um, also something uh, quite smart about like the look of this. Um, like it has like a very specific um, palette at times, um, but there's almost like this um, uh, kind of like battle between like warm and cool imagery uh, kind of going on throughout. And you kind of see the movie like gradually get like more and more uh, like red and yellow and, 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 and kind of heat up in a way um, and, and become like more contrasty as it goes. Um, and I, I kind of like thought that that was obviously like quite deliberate in the design and, and uh, it was kind of uh, like, like fun and, 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 and it, you end up in this kind of very strange visual, visual uh, place that, uh, that, that it, you know, it doesn't look like like a ton of other movies. Um, and, but at the same time, it's like, you know, um, it's just they, they made some decisions, you know, like based on like the resources available. 
um, and and you know turned like what is a what is a logistical problem into a creative strength. Yeah, well, I mean, those amazing shots. I mean, well, I'll, I'll let you go in a minute, Monaco, but I actually sure. I have to bring up the Reds. I mean, I have to bring up literally the beehive shots where you've now resurrected or whatever has happened. There is an evil entity in the house. There is an evil force. And one of the characters starts seeing visions of the plantation basically on fire. All the beehives and honeycombs are aflame. And it's just that thick red overlay. That's the only color you're seeing. And like the rage conveyed in that moment, and just as you know, Tyler's alluding to before, it is building up in color palette wise. And not only do we get those moments of the, like just that gorgeous, thick, saturated red and just the, the anger and the evil that it conveys, but also, I, I don't know if you, like, maybe this is just me noticing this, but as the film went on, and especially towards the later ends, it had that kind of auburn tint to everything, and especially in the basement, it kind of felt like it almost went like into like a grindhouse, almost throwback, they're trying to evoke like the VHS quality um, to hit on that vibe that like, I don't know, like I, I almost felt like I could have been watching this in a drive-in theater, uh, the way that it, it became like a little grainy at the end there. Well, I, I want to ask both of you about that, actually, because I think, you know, it, as you said, Donato, it's something that comes up throughout the film, especially, you know, when um, when the character of I'm trying to remember my names, Alexandra Alley goes down into the basement and comes back up that first time. That's when you really get that splash of red. And then that's an integral part of the palette going forward. But, you know, we've seen so many movies over the last few years that are basically like, oh, you know what's in right now? The 80s. Let's wash our film in colors, especially reds. You know, it's it's an aesthetic that as we move out of that 30-year nostalgia cycles, we start to move towards more 90s-inspired uh, horror films. You know, it's it, it feels a little dated. You watch some films and you're like, all right, that nostalgia element, that throwback to the 80s, like, that can feel a little dated. It doesn't feel like you never get that sense that um, they're doing something to do something, right? Like they're not evoking 80s VHS. I do agree with you. It's present, Donato. But it never feels like they're evoking it in to supplement whatever aesthetic they feel like they need. So what is it about that balance, I think, that, that makes it work so well where they can introduce that, but it doesn't feel like something that they're doing just because everybody else is doing it? Yeah, I mean, I think they're not really wearing uh, the fact that it's uh, it has throwback elements on their sleeve, you know, like like I don't think there's, um, uh, you know, like they like they make some like references to pop culture and things like that. Um, but like like these are contemporary feeling kids to me. Um, and, and I feel like like because the, the world that they're inhabiting is, uh, you know, does feel modern, even though it's like, you know, it has like such a such a long history. It doesn't feel like they're aping. Um, specifically to a, a kind of subset of films, which I think um, is probably the type of thing that that makes uh, movies, uh, you know, and I'm, uh, I'm probably guilty of this too, um, you know, as a filmmaker, like where you kind of like, if, you, if you're like pushing people towards like a certain set of expectations, um, you know, like it, it does kind of, you know, it, it creates um, opportunities, but it also, you know, kind of boxes you in in a way. Yeah, I think it's more visual storytelling elements. I, I think it works because when all of these colors uh, kind of splash on the screen at the end and they all become like this weird fucked up rainbow of different angers and rages and there's a specific moment I'm thinking of and you have the Honey Baron just screaming at the top of his lungs. Two of the characters at this point are having sex basically to summon this demon into the world. And another character is off having her own like psychotic breakdown. 
And all of these very chaotic elements are overlapping one another and it's cutting back and forth and back and forth. And this is specifically when those reds and those auburns and all these now heated colors are, are just almost like trading places and like taking turns, just taking over the screen. And it, it is just so gorgeously destructive in a way. It, it is the chaos has taken over completely and the color adds so much to that. So I do think, I do think there's a few shots in the film itself that are particularly throwing back to an evil dead vibe specifically, you know, when, when the entity first enters the house and you have the shot where the camera's going through all the rooms and every door and every window is closing on its own. I think that's a specifically very Raimi throwback, but at the end with those colors and whatnot, it's not, you're right. It's not trying to throw back to anything. I, I think that is itself trying to stake a claim in the devil lives here and saying, this is our movie. This is how we've chosen to represent how our climax is going to, you know, be intensified and we're just going to do it our way. Yeah. And I don't know if it was the, the use of bees. I don't know if it was the weird sadomasochistic sex. I don't know if it was the physical scarring, but the one thing that I found myself thinking over and over again, um, and Joe Lipset, if you're listening, you definitely want to check this one out. Is I felt a little, I felt a little bit of Clive Barker in this. I really did. Like it, it felt, it felt like it had the transformation of the flesh element, and it, it understood, in the way that Hellraiser understood that, like you know, the you have this thing and it's bad and it's coming, but also like having these little characters that are kind of scurrying around trying to do what they can, like that. There's a lot of satisfaction and value in there. So. To me, it was it was like a really really earthy Clive Barker, um, which is a, a winning combination every time out. Anytime I can compare anything to Barker, like I'm I'm immediately going to love it. Yeah, I mean the Candyman stuff is there too. That it, it, it was in Tyler's pitch, and that was one of the first things that kind of got me a little perked on it. And you get the opening on the the bee farm plantation area, and it is so very much Candyman. And as it as it brings the uh, history of the forefront, as it brings the past traumas to the forefront. It's, it's, it's again, a winning combination with Candyman tied into Brazilian historical context. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad Tyler too, that you mentioned a little earlier about the, um, you know, talked about the conversation you had with the filmmakers. Um, because I feel like one of the challenges that we have sometimes with the films that we want to talk about and the films we do talk about on Certified Forgotten are, you know, the stuff that tends to miss just broadly speaking, the stuff that tends to miss with American audience, a lot of times it's foreign films. A lot of foreign films tend to play up sort of like local or national concepts or tragedies or historical events. And then there's this weird gap where you're watching something and you're like, I don't like, I recognize that this is important um, and I, I, I'm reaching for it, but I can't, you know, I can't quite feel it in the moment. I don't, I don't exactly know what it is they're doing. So talking about the, the research that you went out and did a little bit into, you know, the history of the Brazilian slave trade, talking about those filmmakers. One of the things that was frustrating as I was doing my research into this movie is whatever it was about that, that, um, festival circuit it did, it didn't hit the right locations to get those kind of interviews. Because I find myself a lot of times, festival interviews are the greatest resource that we have as people that are writing about film, because people are going to sit down and say like, hey, what is your inspiration? Like, what's the local legend? Who is the honey baron in, you know, the town you grew up in or something like that? Provide some of that understanding and context. So I understand the folkloric elements, the historical elements that you brought to the film. Um, And 
one of the things that that like just really made me bummed about this is is those those stories, those narratives, those secondhand resources for this just just aren't there. So even a little bit that you were able to kind of fill in and talk about production history and things like that, that's great because I all I want to do is go out and like find interviews with uh, Rodrigo and Dante and be like, what were what was your smorgasbord of ideas that you were drawing from? Because there's a lot here. Yeah, totally. And and they're very uh, they're very clever guys. Um, and they they actually had a short film here uh, that played Scream Fest last year called uh, Dead Teenager Seance. Um, they did well, um, and uh, and so I, I I saw them again last year just because uh, I was just happened to be at Screenfest, and um, and I was like, oh hey guys, yeah, and so we, we caught up a little bit, but um, but I um, um, I mean I guess the reason that they got to be able to do this movie is is they um, had submitted a, a short film for the ABCs of Death um, competition, uh, you know years ago, like Drafthouse used to do this thing for, for people who may or may not know, uh, Drafthouse used to do this thing where they would they would send out a call for uh, for people to make short films based on letters. And then they would have this like, uh, like, you know, essentially 26 short films based on the alphabet. Um, that became the ABCs of death collection. Like, and I think they did two or three of them. Um, and anyway, so these guys uh, had submitted for one of those competitions and came in like third and they did a short film called M is for mailbox, um, which is pretty awesome. You can find on YouTube. Um, and, uh, and then, uh, you know, off that, they just got a little, a little attention. And then, uh, you know, a Brazilian producer like saw it and liked it and, um, and was like, hey guys, you know, like um, I, I, I um, have this idea, and, and so then they, uh, you know, uh, found a writer, and then ended up, you know, uh, he ended up uh, striking, you know, uh, pulling together some money for them to go and do this, and you know, like I mean, and if I were in that guy's position, you know, like if I gave, you know, a couple kids, you know, they were twenty three, you know, like fifty k to go make a movie, and they brought back something like this, I'd be over the moon, you know, yeah. um, and, and it's, you know, it just goes to like speak to that, um, you know, like like I think they they found like a certain number of references, some of which are, you know, like, like, I mean, you know, every, you know, um, a lot of movies, you know, uh, reference evil dead. Um, um, but you know, like, I don't think that, uh, is what's like good about this movie, you know, like they're bringing, like, I think the mood is really the star here and, and, uh, and that, and they've, they bring a lot of kind of, uh, they show a lot of confidence out of the gate with like the things like the performance and, and the way it's just shot and constructed. And then, then they actually like have, have these sequences that kind of set it apart. Um, and so it's it's a shame when it goes to like um, you know festivals like and has you know like like Sitges is a real you know like a real big deal even mm-hmm. though like in America we don't talk about it too much but like it's like you know, it's closer to Cannes than it is to Screamfest you know like like it's it's a big it's a big deal for uh, in terms of like setting a tone for how a genre title does and and they you know like they had the movie play there and it was you know and it you know went off well and got you know some positive reviews out of that but again it's like it didn't get um, uh, you know apparently the right type of heat to, to um uh, uh to like propel them um to next level essentially or get the movie the type of eyeballs that i think had it been like a domestic american movie it might even had a better shot at you know yeah and that's something we talk about obviously you know we talk about what what could have given this film more eyes what could have gotten more people talking about it and without naming any companies i did see who distributed this one and Unfortunately, it makes sense why nobody saw this because they are notoriously bad at getting their films in front of critic eyes, I, I would say. Um, they've just gotten a reputation at this point, and I guess a lot of uh, critics just don't don't really love uh, getting those emails um, because I don't even remember getting like a PR blast for this, and this came out only a few years ago when I've been really hitting hard as hard as I can. So I think it is unfortunate sometimes uh, just certain distribution companies are either ignored or they just aren't known for 
getting a lot of attention for their films and i it like it sucks to say out loud like i'm not trying to like poo poo them but i I just see i see a trend because if i go on rotten tomatoes and see a lot of their films specifically they're pretty uh critic review barren you know it's it's funny you bring that up though because that was actually one of the biggest selling points before i saw the film and again, we won't. We we're going to say something nice, and we're going to say something mean, but we're still not going to name them. So there you go. If you're listening from that company, we balance the scales a bit. But you know, when I realized that this was distributed in the United States, by I was I was really that excited about it because they, to me, you know, we both um, Donato who spent time in, in um, the city <laughs> that they're that they're located in. Oh, look, I'm and, sorry, I'm going to cut you off. I'm not talking about Kino Lorber. Kino. Oh, okay. Good okay. Yeah. Okay, no, okay. Kino's I good. Was gonna, they. All right, then we're good. Because I was all right. Then let me back this up and say, um, you know, one of the things that was a selling point for me is that this is a Kino Lorber film because Kino Lorber really knows their shit when it comes to curation. They don't typically exist for the films that are going to be the splashiest stuff. I think a lot of their stuff is tends to be art house. It tends to be, you know, not not the the established canon of Western classics or film noir. They kind of go that second or third level deep, and that's the stuff that they pick up and distribute. But the fact that The Devil Lives Here is a Kino Lorber movie is probably, to kind of segue into like our last talking point, and I want to hear you both weigh in on this too, but that was probably the biggest indication to me that there might be a future for The Devil Lives Here as a a midnight successful film is something that people want to screen in a world where movie theaters exist because like that they are so good at pulling out repertory titles and they have such an interesting and diverse backlog of stuff that they're one of, they're one of those, um, they're one of those distributors. They're one of those programmers that if, if I see Kino Lorber, uh, I'm going to stop and I'm going to pay attention because when they do something, I, it doesn't, I doesn't mean I know anything about it. I just know that like, all right, somebody with, with, who gave the, this movie the time of the day saw it. It's not something where they were just like saw a log line and were like, great, let's add it to the collection. Like, they're very intentional about the stuff that they program and the stuff that they add to their collection. So that to me is, is one of those things where I was like, all right, maybe people will watch this because Kino Lorber has staying power. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting to me too, like just having, um, you know, been able to listen to like the episodes that you guys have made and just kind of seeing like how movies get lost in the shuffle a little bit. Like, um, like one of the frustrating things for me was like, uh, was like, um, like Patchwork has um, fewer than five reviews or whatever uh, on on Rotten Tomatoes. Like it doesn't it doesn't, doesn't have a score, but it's um, but like it came out on Netflix. You know what I mean? Like it was on Netflix for a year and a half. You know, like in like 2016, 2017. But it was like right before they started doing like big banner ads for everything that dropped, and they didn't do the top ten thing yet. And it was like you know, and it just kind of you know, and and like and oddly enough, like when we landed on Shutter you know, like earlier this year, like that in a weird way created more heat, you know, like, and, and, and it, just cause it was curated to like a more specific audience. And, um, and so it's interesting to see how um, like movies uh, like, you know, uh, will fall through the cracks for all sorts of reasons. And, and a lot of them isn't, isn't you know, like necessarily access. Um, whereas something like this, like, I mean, I fully expect like these guys, you know, will, you know, like, like I'm, I'm, you know, it's a type of like this movie leads me to believe that like if they do a second feature, you know, it, it'll kill on the international circuit and we'll hear a lot more from them. And then all of a sudden people are going to be, you know, like, like ordering copies of this. Yeah. yeah. And I think on a, on a confessional piece for me, a hundred percent, I remember seeing uh, the patchwork poster on Netflix for a long time. And because it was Netflix and I had experiences on Netflix where they do just throw things up there and they don't, 
curate, I would say. That's a great way to put it. Because Netflix, to me, just feels like more churn and burn. They're just going to take whatever they can get, put it up there, and it's going to live there. Uh, we talked about this on the Teenage Cocktail episode because I had seen Teenage Cocktail before it hit Netflix. So I was going like, oh man, this is so terrible because they're just going to dump it there and it's going to get forgotten, blah, blah, blah. And Patchwork was like almost the reverse for me because I had I didn't know anything about Patchwork. And you know, years ago, I'm seeing it on Netflix going like, oh, I'll get to that. Oh, I'll get to that. But I kind of never did because Netflix, you get lost in the shuffle. But the minute it hit Shudder, it, like I watched it almost, I think like two days after it hit Shudder. And because they do curation, I think that's, a, again, that's a great way of putting it because these streaming services, the ones that act just as a factory almost or a warehouse for movies to sit for a few years or months and then, you know, you can watch them or not. It, it doesn't feel like there's care put into them. It doesn't feel like they give a shit about what they're putting on. So why should you versus Shudder is out here saying, yo, Y'all haven't seen Patchwork. You got to see it. And 100%, I watched it in almost two days after it hit. And, you know, I sent it to Amelia. And I was like, Amelia, you're going to dig this shit. And literally three days later, we had an episode planned. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, not to be, not not to pull businessy stuff into the podcast, Donato, because I know that's your your thing too. But um, there is a, there's a professor, um, a mild stopping guy on Columbia University, Sheena Anger, who wrote a book on choice. And the premise that is pretty well accepted these days is that basically the more choices you give people, the less likely they are to make a choice because there's just too much available. And so they'll make no choice whatsoever. Whereas if you give them a limited amount of options, they might be more likely to choose from among them. So, you know, Tyler, it's really interesting to hear you talk about that with Patchwork and The Devil Lives Here maybe is another example, but you think like, you know, I, I can't imagine what goes into the process. I can't imagine the the trade-offs and decisions you have to make and, you know, all of that that goes into releasing your movie into the world and figuring out who's the best fit. But what I will say is there are probably movies, there are probably a lot of films that would benefit from a smaller and more engaged audience than the opportunity to reach a larger audience and, and never really have that that curated experience, right? There's a lot of the movies that we talk about on this podcast are exactly those stuff that would sink on on Netflix because there isn't anything to help them stand out for the crowd, um, but are standouts on Shutter because people go to Shutter for a reason. They know that there was a, a choice involved in it, and they know that that somebody put it there because they really loved it. And the less choices, less competition, less things to choose from makes you more likely to actually stick with something and probably love it. So, what would you? I, I mean, here's my question. Then, like one of the last ones, like. How would you get people watching The Devil Lives Here? Like, is there some way to do a double feature with this film with a, a more, let's say, famous title or a more well-known title that you can shoehorn and say, like, if you like this, you would like The Devil Lives Here or something of that nature, or even like do like a, a double bill? Yeah, what's your what's your dream double bill here, Tyler, for this one? Uh, well, I mean, I think you could, you know, I think the Candyman one is pretty obvious. Um, uh, I, I do, uh, I haven't seen Candyman in years, um, but, uh, but I, I do think that that would be a nice um, compliment. I'm trying to think of it, if there's another, uh, if I should be digging deeper, another like Cabin in the Woods sort of uh, movie that might have a little bit more in common with it. Uh, yeah, because like, I'm also thinking of like the political aspect too, and the historical aspect and you know, it's been like a banner year, I think, for the crossroads of history and horror. 
just going down the list of like Sputnik, La Llorona, and so many more examples. Uh, for some reason, like, well, actually not for some reason, the world is burning around us and we're trying to figure out what the hell is going on in our political lives. <laughs> but everything is kind of coming out right now and you're getting so many different cultural perspectives and horror and it's so fantastic. And that almost makes me think that if The Devil Lives Here came out pretty recently, it would be talked about as you're talking about the cultural renaissance that's happening right now in horror versus the fact that it came out a few years ago and that movement was maybe just starting and it didn't have the legs and the representation at that time in in the industry, like all the comparison points. Um, so like, I would love to see some kind of retrospective, even of like movies this year and looking back on it and then trying to pull back even further and say, well, you're all talking about, you know, representation in horror cinema in 2020, but you know, here's a few titles that you guys missed. Yeah. I mean, maybe something like, um, Oh my God, what was that movie with Ethan Embry? Uh, that was, uh, like the devil's, um, devil's candy. Uh, yeah, Devil's Candy. Like, I feel like something like that in this would be kind of a fun double feature, you know? Uh, like, uh, it, was, it was the guy who did Love Ones, right? The, yeah, the Sean, Sean yeah, Byrne. Sean, yeah, yeah, like that. I feel like something like that and this would pair pretty well together because they have kind of like a, like a sort of like metal vibe to them and, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, a similar color palette, but there's something kind of like, you know, um, uh, satanic going on that's, that's uh, I think it, it could be a lot of fun to time together. I think my dream pairing for this one would be Baskin, as weird as that may seem. I I just like, I like the, I I like the, when both movies go off the rails, um, the same amount in that third act. And I think that you put this in front of a good midnight audience. I think they would have an equally good time with both of them. All right. Well, that is The Devil Lives Here. It's available on Kino Lorber's streaming service, um, which I recommend... If you have the ability, uh, throw a couple of bucks that way. It's a good platform and that probably hopefully will get a little bit more money in the pockets of the filmmakers than something like Tubi. God bless Tubi. We love Tubi here. You know what I mean? Um, but Tyler, I want to say thank you so much, man, for, for coming on the show. Thank you, honestly, for fucking listening to the show. It's so cool when we have people that come on and, and want to talk about the, the other movies that we talked about because that gets us excited when people are excited about the other films that we've talked about on here. Um, and you know, I know you've got a lot in the works that you can't talk about. You've always, every, everybody's always got something brewing, but if people do want to follow you on social media, or if they want to learn more about some of the projects that you've already done, or maybe get whispers of what might be in the pipeline for you, what's the best place to go? How do they, how do they stay connected? Uh, yeah, um, they can follow me on Twitter at TMAC film. Um, it's pr- I'm pretty much the easiest person in the world to get a hold of, uh, uh, yeah, and if they want to check out uh, uh, Patchwork, it's on um, it's on Shutter right now, and uh, and Tragicals is on Hulu as well as um, uh, a movie I directed earlier this year called Good Boy. It was part of the Into the Dark series for Blumhouse. Uh, that's kind of um, new on the scene as a couple months ago. Donato, where do we go to check out all the movies you've made? Uh, those movies are not available to the public, so you can follow my writing on other people's movies at Donato Bomb on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram, where I will be posting all of my lovely reviews and recaps and write-ups, and uh, we're nearing the end of the year, so we're going to start getting into a countdown territory where I'll be recapping all the fantastic things I have seen this year, detailing all the gory deaths, and looking forward to another year of horror next year. Yeah, it's going to be a weird year for top 10 lists, huh? 
Not really. I've seen over 100 horror movies this year. No, I just mean like it's going to, nobody, everybody's going to have theirs, but there's not going to be the same homogeny, I think, that we see with a lot of top 10 lists. No, the, you, uh, you had to go out and find it. You had to go yeah. out and find it this year. Yeah. As for myself, you can follow me on Twitter at Labsplice, L-A-B-S-P-L-I-C-E. Um, as always, we super encourage you to go check out CertifiedForgotten.com, where we're running twice a week. Uh, some of the some of the best film criticism, uh, horror-related film criticism. I'm biased, but I, I think some of the best film criticism out there. You can also listen to back episodes of the podcast. I certainly recommend that you go and listen to the Patchwork episode. Um, we have a really fun conversation about horror comedies, which has been alluded to here. Spoiler alert, I'm an asshole. I don't like to laugh. Um, but Amelia and Donato have a really good conversation on that one. And yeah, um, if you like the show, leave a review. Follow all of us on social media and let's uh let's let's see what what the rest of 2020 and 2021 can bring so tyler again i want to say thanks so much for coming on the show man and you have at least three other movies that you gave us so we're gonna have to have you back on sometime soon oh thanks so much guys i I appreciate you having me donato the honey baron